Back to Matthew, we turn and back to the Sermon on the Mount, and as we call it, back to chapter 7, please, which is in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful, at page 812. We're turning a corner here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is bringing the ethical instruction portion of his uh, sermon to a climax and to a close. The rest of the sermon will be a sort of hortatory uh, conclusion in which uh, he's going to give us no new commandments, no new descriptions of righteousness, but rather uh, reasons why it's so important for us to put these commandments into place, to live this kind of righteousness, to live the Christian life. And uh, so that will begin, Lord willing, next week. For now, we come to uh, what we often call the golden rule. Let's pray, seek the Lord's help. As always, we're in need of that. And then we'll go to Matthew 7 and pick up at verse 7. Father, we thank you for your word. We know our need of you when we open it, our need to understand it, surely, that our minds may be conformed more and more to your truth and be renewed, but also that we may live your word, that we may not be hearers only, but doers of it. Father, we want this to describe us, to describe our lives, that we may even see ourselves in it. So would you please send your spirit to do a great work in us now? and to continue that work until the day of completion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7. We'll pick up at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Does it ever occur to you, I'm, I'm sure it does, how very otherworldly our lives must be, are as Christians? And when we hear this sermon from our Savior, and we're freshly reminded, aren't we, of the, the constant tension of living between two worlds, aren't we? We're, we are somewhere between heaven and the world. Not quite fully in heaven in that we're still living by faith and not by sight, but certainly not, no longer of the world, even as we live in the world. Has this not been your impression as we've listened to Jesus setting a very high standard for us in this sermon? We are to be as faithful to him in the secret places of our hearts as we are in our outward actions, in our outward behavior, singular in our devotion to him, which is, remember, we, we learned when we were in the Beatitudes, is the meaning of pure of heart, 
singular in our desire for him. We are to love our enemies, Jesus said, to respond to cruelty with kindness. To the needy, we're to be generous without a thought to our own reputation. Indeed, being very careful to keep our reputation out of the matter altogether. We're to deny the world and its pleasures. To give our service to God depending on Him to supply all that we need without worry. And to live as the salt and light that we are to the world. We're to look not for the praise of men, but for the praise of God. Last week we learned that we're to practice generous, not critical or censorious judgment of others, particularly our brothers and sisters in the church. Now, we might be forgiven for coming to verse 12 here, the so-called golden rule, and considering it yet another layer of Christian ethics on top of everything else that the Lord has taught us. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' point here. This command, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, Jesus says, is a summary. It sums up everything. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is the climax. This is a summary of what has come before. And I, again, I ask you, can't you hear in those words how you, Christian, live in, in between two worlds? With, with heaven ruling your hearts and your lives, even as you continue to live shoulder to shoulder with a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the world? No wonder that Jesus should, should send our eyes upward now once again to our Father in prayer to ask, seek, knock. Who is equal to these things? Who can possibly live the life that Jesus is describing to us here in these chapters? No, my brothers and sisters, we cannot attain to this. It's too high for us. So as people who live in two worlds, our eyes are constantly turned in two directions, aren't they? And it is in those two directions that I, that I want to turn your eyes freshly this morning, dear flock. First, let us have our, our eyes turned by Jesus toward men, or to use Jesus' word, toward others. How must we as Christians, living between two worlds, approach others, brothers and also unbelievers? Well, as I look at the, at the context here, it occurs to me that there are two stances for us to assume toward others that might be summarized in these two words, humility and charity. Humility and charity. First, we must assume a stance of humility toward others. Is that not what lies right at the root of what Jesus told us last week about not judging others? What kind of man is quick to censure and judge others, particularly his brothers in Christ? Quick to see the speck that's in his brother's eye, but blind to the moat, to the log that is in his own. Only an arrogant man, a man prideful, overly confident in his judgment, is so short-sighted, in short, in some, a hypocrite, to use Jesus' word. Instead, as Paul expands on the idea in Philippians, each one of us must count others more significant than ourselves. Humility is key. 
Second, as we look toward others, and particularly as we live toward others, we must do so from a stance of charity. And by charity, I mean in the classic sense of that word charity. I mean love, true and genuine love. Jesus says that it is to do unto others whatever you wish that others would do to you. Would you be given the benefit of the doubt by others in their estimation of your actions, of your decisions? Well, now you know how to treat them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Would you be trusted by others? Well, now you know how to treat others as trustworthy. Would you be respected by others? Well, now you know how to treat others. In Jesus' summary of the law, respect them. Now you know how to love others, don't you? Would you be treated gently? Now you know how to love others with tenderness and understanding and patience. As I say, we call this the golden rule. It is, in a nutshell, the greater righteousness, isn't it, that Jesus has been talking about and that Jesus expects of you and of me, of all of his disciples. Later on, in this same gospel, the Lord will say that the commandment to love God, the commandment to love our neighbor as ourself, sum up the entire law of Moses. Indeed, we must not forget that the golden rule is really only an elaboration, isn't it, of the commandment uh, way back from Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Remember that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the form is perhaps original to Jesus here. The moral standard, however, goes all the way back. Way back in Scripture. Now, some of you will say, well, there's nothing remarkable really about this standard. After all, the same rule can be found in the negative form in a wide variety of ancient writings from the Athenian philosophers to the Jewish rabbis. You know, apparently, it appears in that negative form in the teaching of Confucius, for example, who is credited with having said, do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. During the recent community forums surrounding the push for adding special uh, protections in Davis County law for the LGBTQAI plus community, one of the speakers rose to quote the many different forms that uh, the golden rule has taken over the centuries and many different religions and philosophies. Apparently this rule is written right on the heart of every human being. But what was striking to the, to the discerning ear was the fact that in that list of quotes, Jesus was apparently the first to give it this positive and therefore this impossibly high and demanding form. The principle of Christian righteousness is unselfish love and action. Bishop Ryle says this about the golden rule. It, sets, it settles a hundred different difficult points which in a world like this are continually arising between man and man. 
It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It, it sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. And it is, as I say, a truly high standard because as, John, as the late John Stott pointed out, self-love is a powerful force in our lives. Alfred Edersheim called such neighbor love the nearest approach to absolute love of which human nature is capable. Ah, ah, but there's the rub. There's the rub, right? Are we capable of such love? Are we capable of it? Can we truly love our neighbor as ourselves? Now, how many of you find yourself naturally inclined and always successful at living this out, at doing to others what you would have them do to you? Please raise your hands. Thank you. <laughs> yes. This is a truly otherworldly standard and otherworldly life to which we're called and for which we've been saved, dear flock. Once again, it places us between two worlds because it's a, it's a heavenly standard by which we live daily in a world that is whatever it may say to the contrary, truly dog-eat-dog. Dog. It's not to unbelievers. It's not to unbelievers, but like the rest of this sermon, it is to believers that Jesus issues this mandate. It is to Christians that Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. Unbelievers cannot do this. Not truly, not genuinely. Maybe you've heard the name Samuel M. Jones. Or perhaps you've heard it a little differently, Samuel M. Golden Rule Jones. Jones was a, a progressive era mayor of Toledo, Ohio from 1897 until the time of his death in 1904. Jones was famous for his outspoken advocacy of the proverbial ethic of reciprocity, or golden rule, hence his nickname. Jones was a, a well-known, eccentric advocate of municipal reform. He oversaw implementation of a series of humane modifications of the city of Toledo's administration during his tenure as mayor. Before taking office, Jones had been a successful businessman, having moved to the oil fields of Ohio in 1886. It was there that he helped establish the Ohio Oil Company, a firm that was purchased by the Standard Oil Company, making Jones a wealthy man. In 1892, he moved to Toledo, where he turned his talents to mechanical invention, obtaining a patent in 1894 for a new variety of iron pumping rod for deep well drilling. He opened a manufacturing plant in Toledo that same year for the manufacture of these so-called sucker rods for the oil industry called the Acme you know the rest, the Acme Sucker Rod Company. Well, Jones 
operated his new enterprise in accord with some of the emerging ideas, business ideas of uh, work, workplace reform in his day. He paid his workers above prevailing wage. He implemented the eight-hour working day for his workers. He offered paid vacation, <laughs> revenue sharing, and on the list goes. He even bought instruments or made, made money available for his employees to buy instruments in order to create a company band. And instead of a lengthy list of company regulations governing employee behavior, Acme Sucker Rod Company posted only one rule on the company notice board. It read this, thus, the rule that governs this factory. Therefore, whatsoever ye would that men do unto you, do ye even so unto them. Jones was not a Christian, but he was what is called a Christian socialist. And admittedly, many of his reforms brought happy results for the community. But he was admittedly never quite able to master his own single rule. In his biography entitled, Holy Toledo, we read that Jones always suffered an internal battle over his failure truly to obey his own rule, borrowed as it was, of course, from Jesus. Near the end of his life, of Jones's life, his friend, Brand Whitlock, watched as the attempt to live according to the golden rule took its toll on Jones. One day, Jones visited a man who had publicly persecuted him, hoping for reconciliation, writes his biographer. He was sure that if they simply talked man to man, they would arrive at a better understanding. Jones brought with him to the interview a, a written statement of his position. He offered it to the man and, and asked him to read it that they might discuss the question. But the man grabbed the sheet out of his hands and summarily tore it into bits and threw it down. Jones said nothing. He did nothing. He turned on his heel and marched straight to Brand Whitlock's, his friend's office. At a glance, Whitlock could see that his friend was trying to master some unusual emotion. Jones sat down, remaining silent there in his office for some time, and at last the concerned Whitlock saw his face break into that beautiful smile of his. Jones, Sam Jones was an uh, amazingly handsome man, blue, piercing eyes. And uh, so more beautiful than I'd ever seen it, Whitlock uh, says. Jones said to Whitlock, well... I've won the greatest victory of my life. I have done what it has always been hardest for me to do. And again, there was silence. Whitlock waited. You know, it has always seemed to me that the most remarkable thing that was ever said of Jesus was that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. Whitlock thought Jones had paid a terribly high price. And he observed this. He had never, it seemed to me, been quite the same after the day 
when he had that experience of insult, which he did not resent. Took its toll on Jones. The biographer draws the lesson. According to Christianity, a victory that can be expressed that way with the emphasis on I is a defeat. Sam's failure and his pain came from pride. He needed to be the victor. He could not surrender to God's grace. On some level, Sam knew this. It accounts for his pessimism about his own ethical journey. How insightful was that biographer? This law, the golden rule, it's for Christians. It's for Christians. This is the law for your life, Christian, for our lives as Christians. And we Christians are the ones who are take this, to take this summons to heart and to ponder its meaning and to face its implications for our everyday living. And what are those implications? Well, the golden rule is a universal principle. It applies to every single area of our lives and every relationship. It will be a principle, one commentator wrote, which will dominate the Christian's life at home, in the factory, in the bus, in the office, in the street, in the train, in his games. Everywhere. And it must be obeyed not merely outwardly, but from the heart. Else it's not real obedience. See, we can sit here in this sanctuary, can't we, and, and agree with a nod of our head, yes, this is a life to which Jesus calls us. Not only this verse, but all through the sermon, every particular piece of righteousness Jesus has described finds itself rolled into this single principle. Yes, we can say this is the greater righteousness that should characterize us. And we might imagine that we're actually keeping this commandment fairly well. Well, you know, in certain ways anyway, <laughs> with certain people. But the Lord means to give no exceptions. No exceptions. No area of our lives. No relationship in which it's just fine for us to treat another person with contempt. That person that really gets our goat. Jesus took that possibility away, didn't he? When he said that we're to love our enemies with this kind of self-forgetful love. And that, dear flock, is the reason I believe that prayer <laughs> is right in the front and center of Jesus' mind at this point in his sermon. He's just called on us, hasn't he, to judge no one. And now he calls on us to love everyone. <laughs> his, his demands of his disciples are staggering. We can't do this. We can't. In our own strength, most of us can't even get as far as Sam Golden Rule Jones did. <laughs> so how? Now we turn to the second point. 
We've turned our eyes toward men, toward others, to find that we are to call, called to humble ourselves and to love others. Now, as we continue to find ourselves living between two worlds, let us second turn our eyes toward God. And that turning, we are utterly unsurprised to find out Jesus telling us is and must be in the form of prayer. How shall we live this life? You know, how shall we not only do better than Sam Jones, but actually do what Sam Jones, even with all of his efforts, abjectly failed to do? The only way we can by prayer. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, shredded from the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we might think that Jesus' invitation here is for us to ask for our own earthly desires. And and to be sure, we want certain things. And, and elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that if we ask for the right things, you know, things we can request with a clear conscience to our Father for the right things, we should certainly ask. But here the asking, the seeking, the knocking that Jesus is talking about refers chiefly to pursuing this life, the life and character that's summed up in the golden rule. If you are a genuine Christian, you want passionately to live this life, don't you? You want to live the golden rule. You want your character to be summed up in this. But you know, don't you? You know the hindrances you meet, even as a person in whom the Holy Spirit lives. It grieves you that you ever treat anyone or even think of anyone in lesser terms, in unloving and hateful even terms. How will that change? How will we ever change in this just one way? And it is precisely the way that Sam Jones missed. It is by grace. It's by grace. And God is pleased to release that grace, that enabling power by which you are able more and more to obey through the instrument of prayer. And apparently not just one prayer now and another prayer again, but, that, that, but persevering and striving and struggling and ongoing prayer. And at least a couple of ways the words that Jesus uses here convey that meaning. Certainly there's a building crescendo in them, in these commandments, isn't there? Ask, seek, knock. You know, show a, they show a progression of intensity in the prayer. But even the tense of the verbs that Jesus uses here bespeaks uh, not a one-time action, but a continuing action, a continuing asking, an ongoing seeking, a persevering knock, knock, knock at heaven's door by prayer show Jesus' meaning. Persistent prayer, daily prayer, even hourly prayer for the help of God by which alone we will love this way. Have the love that He requires of us here. 
prayer must do the deed. You ever wonder why your, your Christian life is so much less than you want it to be? Why there's so much weakness, so little achievement? Why we're so lacking in holiness and love? Well, Jesus' brother James supplies us certainly a good part of the answer. You have not. Why? And because you ask not. Yes. Ask. That's what the Lord says. Ask. Ask. Seek. Knock. And what? Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to him it will be open. Have you ever noticed this pattern in your life that the great victories, you know, the great victories of your Christian life, where you have taken ground, where those occasions where you have truly loved others according to the golden rule, that those occasions have always been preceded by prayer. It's no mistake that Jesus is bringing us back to prayer at this point in the Sermon on the Mount after having taken us through this long list of things that should characterize our lives as Christians. How else will we have purity of heart or meekness or integrity, humility, discrimination, faith or love? Only by the power of God. Only by the power of God in us. And that power... Jesus says, is released by prayer. Reuben Torrey wrote, Prayer can do everything that God can do. And as God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. No one can stand against the man who knows how to pray and who meets all the conditions of prevailing prayer and who really prays. He adds that this is true because the Lord God omnipotent works for him and works through him. Ask. Dear flock, ask and seek and knock in prayer and keep at it, persist in prayer until every one of us and all of us together become all that Jesus has called us to be and has died for us to be and has sent His Holy Spirit to us to work in us to be. God will do it. He will Look, Jesus says, arguing from the lesser to the greater, as he apparently loved to do. We've seen him do it several times, haven't we? If even evil, wicked fathers do not give to their children a stone when they ask them for bread or give them a snake when they ask for, for fish, then how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to you when you ask him for them? Father, give me a heart. Give me a heart that truly loves my neighbor. Will your father ever answer that prayer? No. 
Father, help me to treat others the way that I would have them to treat me. Is your Father in heaven going to cross his arms to you and say, nope, not going to do it? Never. No way. God will do what you ask, and he will continue to do this, even if you grow weary and you become tempted to settle for less. C.S. Lewis is a marvelous illustration of this. When I was a child, he writes, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pains became very bad. <laughs> and the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I know those dentists, I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. Now, continues Lewis, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist's. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. That is why he warned his people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that's what you're in for. Nothing less, nothing other than that. Understand that I am going to see this job through. I will not rest. I will not let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my Father can say without reservation that He is well pleased with you. Even as He said He was well pleased with me. Apostle Paul says the same thing, doesn't he, in different words. In his letter to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will not let you quit. Particularly while you're asking him to help you. He won't quit on you. He will continue to form and to shape you, continue to mold you more and more into the Christian that is described in the Sermon on the Mount and summarized by the one who lives by the golden rule himself. Surrender to him. My brothers and sisters, surrender yourself to him let God so rule and so remake your life 
that you see your own face reflected here in heaven as in a mirror, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen.